He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 this morning as we think about uh, the resurrection and as we cherish our resurrected Christ. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped, stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and by your spirit and most of all in the person and work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we celebrate the glory of Christ and the resurrection this morning, would you please fill our hearts and minds with the majesty and glory of the Lord Jesus. Help us to cherish him all the more. As we think about the things in this passage and how they apply even now to our lives, Lord, would you do a work in us even today? Help us to grow in our knowledge of who Christ is and our love for him and our joy in serving him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might be familiar with the name J.R.R. Tolkien. He... um, Famous for writing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, among other things. Uh, What you may not know is he made up a word 
He actually made up a lot of words, but one of the words that he made up, he made up a word to use to refer to a particular moment in a story. He wanted a word that would allow him to refer to the moment when everything seems to be lost and then something happens that changes everything. Something happens and now there's a guaranteed happy ending for that story. And so the word that he came up with to refer to that moment when something happens that guarantees a good ending, the word is eucatastrophe. Uh, he takes the word catastrophe and then he put the, the Greek prefix eu, u, which actually means good, in front of that. Eucatastrophe. It's the moment in any story when something happens that guarantees everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be all right. There's going to be a happy ending. And as we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, the reality is that the resurrection of Christ is the eucatastrophe of all of history. It is the event that has happened that guarantees for you and I who believe a very, 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 beyond our wildest dreams, happy ending. And the resurrection not only guarantees you and I who believe a happy ending, but it also is a source of great power and joy in our lives even now. It is true that for those who believe, the resurrection brings life-changing hope. And so we're going to talk about three ways uh, we can, three things we can do to experience that. Three things from this passage that show us how we can experience that power of the resurrection and that hope that the resurrection of Christ is meant to give us. Number one, we're going to see that we should keep looking. You see that the followers of Jesus, they, they keep looking and the more that they look, the more they see and understand what has happened. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to keep looking. Number two, we're going to follow hard. As we look at Mary Magdalene and her response to the empty tomb, we see the, the magnitude of the impact Jesus has had on her. And it's going to call us to follow hard after him, just like she did. Third, uh, we're going to remember grace. Something that Jesus says here at the end of our passage that is just this beautiful display of the grace of Almighty God. So, keep looking, follow hard, remember grace. All right, let's talk about the first thing. Keep looking. Look at verses 1 through 10. And really what you can see here is that the more you and I study the evidence for the resurrection, the more easy it is for us to believe that it did actually happen. And we see that, by the way, the disciples, as they look and look even more, they begin to understand. Looking at verses uh, 1 through 10, specifically, notice in verse 5, you know, they've arrived at the tomb now. Notice in verse 5, you see the word saw, S-A-W. In fact, you're going to see that word saw in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. Now, what you may not understand, though, is that in the Greek, it's three different words. So let me show you how this actually shapes up. First, John looks into the tomb in verse 5, and it says that he saw the linen cloths. And that's a Greek word that means a glance. So first, John kind of glances into the tomb. Then it says in verse 6 that Peter arrives and he looks into the tomb and he sees or he saw the linen cloths as well. But that's a different Greek word. It's the Greek word thereo, which is where we get our English word theorize. So Peter is 
looking and kind of studying the situation. And by the way, did you notice that John, who's the author of John, makes sure that we all know who got to the tomb first? It's a theological fact that the Apostle John is faster than the Apostle Peter. Okay? <laughs> Writer's privilege. So, so Peter or gets, or John first, he kind of glances in there. Then Peter gets there and he studies, he theorizes, he's thinking about what he sees. And then John looks again in verse 8, except this time uh, that word is the Greek word parao, uh, which is uh, instead of, it's, we translate it as saw, but it's, it's yet another word, and it's he perceives. And notice it says that he saw and believed. He perceives and he believed. And so what you have is this trajectory, right? They, they glance, and then there's more of a, a study look, theorizing, and then there's perception. And see, I love that because what that says is God wants you and I to study it, to think about it, to keep looking at the evidence for the resurrection. And this is, be, this is very powerful for believers as believers continue to look at all the different reasons that Christians believe Jesus really did rise from the dead. It strengthens our faith. But maybe you're here, you're, maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're a non-believer. Maybe you were dragged here by your weird religious relative. Who loves you deeply, by the way. And this is so wonderful to see that as you as well. This is a call for you to really study it. Look at the evidence. There is so much. Some of you might be aware of uh, the name Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an investigative journalist. Worked for the Chicago Tribune back in the 70s and 80s. He was an award-winning investigative journalist. And Lee Strobel's story includes the fact that he was an atheist. He was a pretty staunch atheist. And then his wife became a Christian. And this bothered him a lot. He did not want his wife to be a Christian. And so he started talking to some people at work, and he asked, how, how can he disprove Christianity? And one of the Christians that he knew told him, look, if you can disprove the resurrection, then all of Christianity comes crumbling down, which is true, by the way. And so he decides he was going to set out on this journey to make a case against the resurrection. He's going to use his journalism skills to study the different pieces of evidence that people use to believe in the resurrection. He was going to prove that it didn't happen. He was going to make a case against the resurrection of Christ. But <laughs> what happened to him was the more that he looked, as he kept looking, as he, as he, as he kept seeing the different reasons that Christians believe Jesus really truly did rise from the dead, he realized that if he takes an objective look at all of the data, it began to seem more logical, more rational to him to believe than to continue in disbelief. And he chose to believe. He became a Christian himself. And now he's written several books and he even became a pastor. He kept looking and he began to see that the evidence is really there. And we don't have time to go through all the evidence. There's a lot. 
There's a whole lot of evidence. So scholars talk about, number one, just give you a couple. Number one, the fact that women were the first to witness the resurrection. See, back at that time, in that culture, the testimony of women was not accepted. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. And so scholars say that if the disciples made up the story of the resurrection, the last thing they would have wanted to do is to say that women were the first to witness it. Because the story would have stopped right there. And so they articulate that that actually is evidence that it must have been true. Because the story continued to spread and continued to spread. Uh, Another one would be all the eyewitnesses. The Bible lists a whole mess of people who saw Jesus alive after he died, after he was buried, and after he rose from the dead. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions at one point there were 500 people all at one time who saw Jesus alive and well. And he indicated that there were still people from that group alive so that the people at that time could go and ask them, did you all see him together? And so you have 500 people all at once seeing the risen Christ. And some people have suggested, well, it was a mass hallucination. Well, psychologists will tell you, there is no such thing as 500 people all seeing the same hallucination. What they saw, they all saw. It was true. That's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. God has given us so much evidence of the resurrection. So I want to... I think this calls all of us to, to keep looking. Whether you're a believer or whether you're a non-believer, keep looking. It only strengthens our faith or it challenges our unbelief. Here's, here's one of the ways you can look. You could actually read uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. Millions of copies sold. You could read that. There's other books uh, about, out there as well, but that's a really great one. If you have Netflix, you could actually go and watch the movie titled The Case for Christ. It's on Netflix and it's a really good Christian movie. I'm serious. It's a Christian movie, but it's really good. So watch it. Watch it. The acting's great. And they they walk right through the way Strobel interacted with the evidence. It's really, really quite amazing. Or... Third, if you are wanting just a taste, uh, if you, especially if you're a guest with us, come see me at the Connect table in the foyer afterwards, and I'll give you this little version, The Case for Easter. It's also by Lee Strobel, and maybe that'll get you going. But if you want the resurrection to be a powerful, hope-giving event in your life, keep looking. Number two, follow hard. Follow hard. Look at verses 11 through 16. Because what we want to see here is the way that Jesus transforms the lives of everyone who follows hard after him. Anyone, everyone who chooses to follow hard after Jesus. And by that I mean believe him, trust him, seek to live as he guides. Everyone who follows hard after Jesus, he he transforms their lives. It's one thing to know about the resurrection of Christ. It's another thing to know the Christ of the resurrection. And when you follow him and get to know him, he changes everything. And we see that in the way that Mary is completely destroyed, devastated over his death and now over the apparent disappearance of his body. 
But just think about the scene that John describes here. Think about in verses 11 and 12 and 15 where that word weeping is used. Mary was weeping. And this word weeping is actually quite interesting. It really means to wail loudly. So this is not a quiet cry. This is a very loud wailing of complete desperation and devastation. And in fact, it was actually quite dangerous for her to cry aloud because at that time in that culture, it was illegal to mourn publicly the death of an executed criminal. But she is unfazed and she is crying, completely distraught. She's so distraught that even when in verse 12 it says there were two angels, she sees two angels in gleaming, dazzling white clothing. Completely shocking. But it doesn't even faze her. All she wants to know is where is the body? Why is she so distraught? Why is she so determined to find the body of her Lord? Because Jesus had done for Mary what he does for all who truly follow hard after him. He had transformed her life. One of the things that Jesus did for her, if you were to look in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, it says that Mary was possessed by a number of demons and Jesus cast out those demons. He rescued her from which from something which she could not rescue herself. He set her free when she couldn't set herself free. But that's not all. Her name is mentioned a dozen times in the Gospels, and so she was following Jesus. She was following hard after Jesus. And as she grew in knowing Jesus as a person, as she understood His love and His grace and His compassion and His kindness, He was transforming her life. And presumably she was believing what he was saying. Like when he said in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Or in John 14, verse 6, where he said that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. See, she came to an understanding that Jesus changes everything. Because when you follow hard after Jesus, what you realize more and more and more is that it's not you and I who do anything so that we can be acceptable to God, but rather it's Jesus is the one who does something. In the same way that Mary was unable to rescue herself from those demons, Jesus had to rescue her. You and I, we are all, we cannot rescue ourselves from the penalty that we deserve to pay because of all of our sin. So Jesus must rescue us from that. You see, she needed to learn these things. We needed to learn these things as well. Because by nature, we assume that if we're going to be right with God, it's going to be because we do the right things and we don't do the wrong things. That's how we naturally feel. And when Jesus teaches you and he teaches Mary that it's actually not that way, that we're accepted by God because of the grace of God and the finished work of Christ, it transforms our lives. This is why we talk about this every week here, the gospel. We need to be reminded because, again, by nature, we're always thinking, I I will be right with God when I do the right things. I need to earn it. I need to keep his love. There was a family that adopted an older child, uh, a little girl, a little older though, from another country, and she had come from a really terrible orphanage. 
And so the family was really excited to welcome her into their home, and uh, they gave her her own bedroom, and uh, they were really excited. And they said to her that we're so happy you're here, and one thing we'd love for you to do is to clean up your room every day. Now, this little girl hears that, and she runs it through the grid through which she had looked at life. And back in the orphanage, the the way it worked was, if you mess up, you're not going to eat. You mess up again, you're out. And so when her adopted parents said, we do want you to clean your room every day, she heard, okay, that means if I don't clean my room, then I'm going to be in trouble and I'm going to be out of here. And so the parents were surprised and even heartbroken when they walked into her room after the first night in the morning when they walked into her room. She was sitting there and her room was completely neat and arranged. Her bed was perfectly made. She was sitting on the end of her bed. And they said, good morning. And she said, I've cleaned my room. Can I stay? And, you know, as you can imagine, they were, they said, well, uh, yes, you you can stay, but not, not because you cleaned your room. That, you did that, we just want you to do that for your good. But no, you're here because we have chosen to welcome you into our home. We've chosen to love you as our own. Not because of something you do, but just because we have chosen to love you like this. Yet again, the second morning, they came in. Once again, she's sitting there. The room's immaculate. She's sitting on the bed. And she says, I've cleaned my room. Can I stay? And so, once again, they began to try to explain to her, that's not how it works. You're not welcome here. You're not a part of this family because you do this thing, but rather because we have chosen to love you. We have chosen to welcome you into this family permanently. See, a lot of times we see that there's a lot of moral instruction in the Scripture. There, there is. But all that is for our good so that as we listen to the way our Creator has called us to live, we can flourish. The law has nothing to do with how we are made right with God. We're only made right with God through His grace and through the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. And when we believe that, when we follow hard after the one and trust the one, who went to the cross to die for us, to pay for our sins, as we seek to follow him, not to earn something, but to experience more and more of the grace that we have from God through faith in him, it transforms our lives. Which is, by the way, you know, this this is one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and all other religions and worldviews and philosophies in every other religious system. Your worth or your value or your being accepted is all tied to what you do. But in Christianity, it's tied to what God has done. It's tied to His grace and what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we learn that as we follow hard, as we trust Him more and more. That's why we care about discipleship here. If you're a guest with us, our our mission is to make disciples. And one of the things that you could do is you could get plugged into our church. We have people who are ready to disciple you, to meet with you and teach you how to follow hard and experience more and more of the grace of God. We also have community groups. You stop by the grow table on your way out. And get connected to one of our community groups where you can follow hard with many others and grow in grace and experience that transformed life. So keep looking, follow hard. Third, remember grace. 
Third, remember grace. Look at verse 17. This is such a powerful and beautiful picture of the grace of Almighty God. Because what Jesus does for us, for Mary and for us, in verse 17, is he shows us that because of the resurrection, God is the Father, not the judge, of all who believe. Because of the resurrection, God is the Father and not the judge of all who believe. Look what he says in verse 17. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. One of the things, one of the reasons that many in our culture are rejecting of God or the idea of God is because if God is God, then he is the judge of all. And if he has given his law and we have broken it, then we deserve his judgment, right? We deserve the judge of all the universe to dispense the judgment that we deserve. We, we fear that. Romans 3 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. And so our guilt and our shame that we carry are the things that actually are designed to point us to the fact that we have a judge to answer to. Unless that judge becomes our father. And this is what's so powerful about what Jesus is saying here. Again, look what he says in verse 17. I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. See, what he's getting at is he's gone to the cross now and he's paid for her sin and the sins of all who believe. And he has given his righteousness from his perfect life to her and to all who believe. So that Mary and all who believe are forgiven, completely forgiven for all of the sins we've ever committed, past, present, and future. We're declared righteous in his sight. We're promised eternal life, all received through faith alone in Christ. And we're also made aware that the judge of all the universe has now become our father. He says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words... God, who is his father, is now the God who is also our father if we believe. And and here's what's so important for us to understand. That means that when God, who's the father of Jesus, looks at Jesus, it's the same way in which now God, who's our father now, looks at us. So when we see in the scriptures the way God the Father looks at Jesus, we can know how God the Father, our father, looks at us. Well, how does the Father looked at the Son. One of the places that we see that is in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where Jesus is baptized, where Jesus comes to be identified with sinners like us. And in the process, he's being baptized, and it says that the heavens are torn apart and the Spirit descends onto Jesus like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, when Jesus was identified as the Savior through his baptism, God was so excited, he had so much delight in his son that he literally ripped open the heavens and yelled, that's my boy, that's the one in whom I delight. And now, what Jesus is telling Mary and what he's telling you and I who believe is that his father who loves him and delights in him like that is our Father who loves us and delights in us like 
that. Because Jesus has removed our sin on the cross. I was reading this book and this guy was talking about this, um, the end of his dad's life. His dad had, um, he had begun to suffer from a disease and it was, uh, his body was wasting away, but in, in his mind he was still pretty sharp. And as his dad got worse and worse, this, his son, this man, eventually decided to take several weeks off of work in order to care for his dying dad 24 hours a day until his dad passed on. And so he, he did that and he would care for him all day and then in the evenings, the son would read to his dad so that his dad could fall asleep. Just like when the son was a little boy, his dad used to read to him when he was falling asleep. And so now the roles are reversed and this dad is getting to be there for, or this son is getting to be there for his dad in these final days. And as you can imagine, the it's a long day when you're caring for someone who can't really move. And so the son began to kind of look forward to his dad going to sleep so that he could go and get a break. And in the last few days before his father died, before the dad died, he said that what would happen is he'd be reading a book, a novel or something, to his dad. And his dad would be laying there in the bed with his eyes wide open and this big smile on his face. And so the son would say, Hey, Dad, here's how this works. I'm going to read and you're going to sleep. You're going to close your eyes and go to sleep. And the dad looked at his son and said, okay, okay. And he closes his eyes and the son began to read again. But after a minute or two, he could tell that his dad's eyes were both wide open once again, staring at him, big smile. So he said, come on, come on, dad. Close your eyes. And his dad closed his eyes and the son continued to read. And after about a minute or two, he saw his dad open just one eye (laughs) and this big smile on his face. And when his dad died, he began to think back to that moment, those moments when that would happen. And he began to think about why Would his dad refuse to close his eyes? And he realized it's because his dad just delighted in him. Just couldn't take his eyes off of him. And he said that's what helped him realize the love of the father for the son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it also helped him to realize the love of the Father for us. When Jesus says he's ascending to his Father and your Father, to his God and your God, he's saying that because of the resurrection, through your faith, you are a child of God and the creator and sustainer of all things cannot take his eyes off of you. And he smiles as he delights in you. And you and I who believe get to live knowing 
the Father's smiles are ours at all times. And that changes everything. So, keep looking. Follow hard. And remember grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, struggle to believe that you are looking down upon us eyes wide open, smile on your face, and not because of anything we've ever done, but solely because of the finished work of Christ. And the resurrection proves that what he's done for us satisfied your wrath and now has secured your love and grace for us for all eternity. Father, for those in the room who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, who have not chosen to follow hard, I pray that today you would win them to yourself and to your Son and to your Spirit, that their life would change and that you would receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.